This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. We're delighted you're all here for the Civitas Dei medal ceremony. We will begin this afternoon with an opening prayer, followed by reading from the City of God, which will be followed by the introductory remarks that our uh, panelists will give with regard to why we have made this award to Judge Noonan, and then the presentation of the medal, and then Judge Noonan's lecture. So just to give you a sense of how this will unfold. At this point, I'd like to ask uh, Father Francis Capone to come and give us the opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving and merciful God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day and for the gift of new life in Christ. We ask that you send your spirit upon us, your spirit of wisdom, that we may more closely understand your will, and your spirit of strength, that we might be enabled to do it. We ask that most especially you send your healing upon all those who need it, especially for Judge Noonan, and for all those who require the healing which comes only from Christ. We bless all those who are traveling this day and all those who are participating, and we ask that you bless them as well through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now I'd ask Dr. Elizabeth Bruderly to come and share with us a reading from St. Augustine's The City of God, Book 19, Chapter 17. A house of people who do not live by faith pursues an earthly peace based on the goods and advantages of this temporal life. In contrast, a household of people who live by faith looks to the eternal goods which are promised for the future. It makes use of earthly and temporal things like a pilgrim. It is not captivated by them, nor is it deflected by them from the path that leads toward God, but it is sustained by them so that it may more easily beat the burdens of the corruptible body that weigh down the soul and may at least keep those burdens from getting any worse. Thus, use of the things necessary to this mortal life is common to both kinds of people and to both kinds of household, but each uses them for its own very different end. So also the earthly city, which does not live by faith, seeks an earthly peace, and it establishes a concord of command and obedience among its citizens in order to bring about a kind of accommodation among human wills with regard to the things that pertain to this mortal life and the heavenly city, or rather, that part of which is on pilgrimage in this mortal existence and which lives by faith, must of necessity make use of peace as well, at least until this mortal existence for which such peace is necessary 
passes away. Consequently, for as long as it leads its pilgrim life as a captive, so to speak, in the earthly city, even though it has already received the promise of redemption and the gift of the spirit as a pledge of that redemption, it does not hesitate to obey the laws of the earthly city by which the things needed for sustaining this mortal life are administered. For since this mortal condition is common to both cities, its obedience serves to maintain a concord between the two with regard to the things that pertain to our mortal life. Today is a special day for us and for Villanova University as we celebrate the Civitas Dei Medal and honor its second recipient, Judge John T. Noonan, Jr. To begin, I want to take a few minutes to share with you all what this medal signifies for our community. Over the past 13 years, the university, and in particular the Office of Mission and Ministry, have focused attention on retrieving and renewing our Catholic Augustinian intellectual and historical identity. Because we believe that its richness and substance is a most valuable tool for navigating a world of complexity and ambiguity. We have dedicated the month of November at Villanova as Augustinian Heritage Month. And in fact, today is the birthday of St. Augustine. It is also the feast of all the saints of the Augustinian order, so it is the most appropriate day. We think that it is also um, appropriate that this commemoration take place during this month each year. <coughs> the scope of the Catholic intellectual tradition stretches over two millennia and extends beyond the theological and philosophical traditions to include literature, art, design, and scientific exploration. It encompasses a sacramental view of reality and human experience, seeking to uncover and proclaim the deepest meaning of the universe and humanity. It was about three years ago that we began thinking about such an award in order to give prominence to this tradition, to honor those who have made significant contributions to it, and lastly, to inspire others to continue to enrich the tradition. In his seminal work, The City of God, St. Augustine articulates a distinctive commitment to intellectual engagement between the church and the world. With the Civitas Dei Medal, Villanova University seeks to recognize Catholics who through their work have engaged the church and the world, faith and reason, and who have made exemplary contributions to the Catholic intellectual tradition, and who have shown particular commitment to the pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. In the words of St. Augustine in The City of God, Book 14, what we see then is that two societies have issued from two kinds of love. Worldly society has flowered from a selfish love which dared to despise even God, whereas the communion of saints is rooted in a love of God. In a word, this latter relies on the Lord, whereas the other boasts that in the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own boasting. The other says to God, thou art my glory, thou liftest up my head. In the city of the world, 
Both the rulers themselves and the people they dominate are dominated by the lust for domination. Whereas in the city of God, all citizens serve one another in charity, whether they serve by the responsibilities of office or by the duties of obedience. The one city loves its leaders as symbols of its own strength. The other says to its God, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. In the city of God, there is no merely human wisdom, but there is a piety which worships the true God as he should be worshiped and has as its goal the reward of all holiness, whether in the society of saints on earth or in that of the angels of heaven, which is that God may be all in all. Through these words, we see the relevance of Augustine's wisdom and find direction for our world today. The Civitas Dei medal recalls St. Augustine's quest to renew the city of earth with a vision for and faith in what this world can become. The Civitas Dei medal celebrates contemporaries that have done likewise. I am grateful to all the members of the Mission and Ministry Strategic Planning Committee who worked on this project, and most especially to Dr. Bernard Prusak of the Theology and Religious Studies Department, who suggested the name for the medal and to Dr. Christopher Janasik, who handled the design and crafting of the medal. Today, actually, it was, uh, uh, we should remember, the committee should remember that it was also Dr. Prusak that nominated Judge John Noonan for this award uh, last year. As a prelude to our presentation of the medal uh, and Judge Noonan's lecture, I invite, uh, I want to share with you a little bit about each of our panelists. Our first panelist is Bernard Prusak, professor for historical and systematic theology in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. Has been chair of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies from 2003 to, uh, to 2012. He's author of the Church Unfinished Ecclesiology Through the Centuries. That particular book was awarded first place in theology for the 2005 Catholic Press Association Award. He was the editor of Raising the Torch of Good News, Catholic Authority and Dialogue with the World, the annual publication of the College Theology Society, volume 32. And lastly, the concept of particular church before and after Vatican II. Michelle Dempsey is Associate Dean for Faculty Research and Professor of Law at Villanova University School of Law. She is a former criminal prosecutor and civil trial attorney whose scholarship focuses on criminal law philosophy, especially as it concerns the state's response to violence against women. She holds a BA in philosophy from the University of Illinois, a JD from the University of Michigan, and an LLM from the London School of Economics, and a D. Phil from the University of Oxford. Patrick Brennan uh, is Professor of Law and the John F. Scarpa Chair in Catholic Legal Studies. He joined Villanova faculty in 2004 as the inaugural holder of the John F. Scarpa Chair in Catholic Legal Studies and later served as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Director of the Joint JD MBA program. Professor Brennan has published three books and more than 60 articles, book chapters, and essays. He is currently completing three books, his monograph, The Sovereignty of the Good, 
an essay on law, church, and authority will be published by Oxford University Press. At Villanova, Brennan organizes the annual John F. Scarper Conference on Law, Politics, and Culture. It was our plan that each of our panelists would share with you something about Judge Noonan as to why this award is most appropriately given to Judge Noonan. Bernard Prusak will focus on Noonan as prophetic voice within the church, Michelle Dempsey, Noonan as legal philosopher, and Patrick Brennan, Noonan, a personal testimony. Thank you. It is my task to focus on Judge Brennan's contribution to Catholic intellectual thought in terms of uh, those works which were focused on the theme of uh, doctrinal development with regard to ethical issues. And uh, one of the two books that I'd like to uh, speak in regard to is his 1965 book, Contraception, A History of its treatment by Catholic theologians and canonists. And to do that, if you would allow me, I would like to first uh, look back 48 years, and in looking back 48 years, just develop a bit of a chronology which helps to locate the importance of that work in that period of time. So it was in 1827 that Karl Ernst von Baer published his Epistola de Ovo, de Ovo Mammalium et Hominis Genesi, announcing his biological discoveries about the female ovum and its role in human reproduction. In the late 1920s, Koyasaku Ojino of Japan and Hermann Knauss of Austria independently announced their findings about the ovulation cycle. In 1930, a Dutch Roman Catholic physician Johannes Smulders wrote about the implications of the findings of Ogino Knaus for the prevention of con conception. The concept of rhythm emerged. On August 15, 1930, Resolution 15 of the Lambeth Conference of Anglican Bishops of the Church of England reversed the position they had taken in the 1920 Lambeth Conference and recognized for the first time that there may be a, quote, clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood. The vote was 193 affirmative and 67 negative. It's probably not a coincidence that on December 31st, 1930, Pope Pius XI issued his encyclical letter Casti Canubii, rejecting the morality of artificial contraception, but for the first time, deeming the rhythm method to be acceptable. Moving later, it was October 29, 1951, that Pope Pius XII reaffirmed the position of Pope Pius XI, speaking to the Italian Catholic Society of Midwives. Two years later, something totally new broke in on the human scene. The progesterone pill was discovered and tested. The progesterone pill is one that prevents ovulation or suspends ovulation, is not to be confused with the so-called morning after pill. On September 12, 1958, Pope Pius XII 
speaking to a congress of hematologists in a Vatican audience, critiqued the pill and called it a sterilizant, and as a sterilizant, declared it against the fifth commandment. That drew a critique from a number of theologians, including people such as Louis Janssen's, Monsignor J.M. Royce, uh, and another theologian by the name of Vandermark. Pope Pius XII, of course, dies, and in 1959, Pope John XXIII is elected, and he establishes a commission to study the issue of birth control or contraception. He dies at the end of the first session of the council that he convened. Pope Paul VI succeeds him and enlarges the birth control commission and specifically removes that topic from the competency of the Second Vatican Council, which was then in session. On June 23, 1964, Pope Paul VI declares the norms of Pius XII regarding contraception and birth control to be still valid. It was in 1965, a year later, that John Noonan published Contraception, a history of its treatment by the Catholic theologians and canonists. That book examined the pressures for change and the possibility of reconsidering the prohibition of birth control. The book minutely analyzed the church's perspectives on that issue over the centuries. It noted the impact of the medieval emphasis on the procreation and education of children as being the primary end of marriage versus the alleviation of concupiscence and mutual help, which were termed secondary ends, with little or no reference to love. Noonan noted that the church's doctrine was formed in a society where slavery, slave concubinage, and the inferiority of women were important elements of the environment affecting sexual relations. The education of children was neither universal nor expensive. Underpopulation was the main governmental control and concern. There was an effort to justify marriage and assign a rational purpose and limit to sexual behavior while ever extolling virginity. Noonan noted that the environmental changes requiring a reconsideration of the rules regarding con contraception accumulated only after 1850. These changes brought about a profound development of doctrine on marriage and marital intercourse. Love became established as a meaning and end of marital intercourse. Before women were emancipated, and marriages in the West came to be called a personal decision, the theological perspectives developed by 20th century theologians would have astonished writers such as Augustine, Jerome, Aquinas, and the canonist Huguccio. Noonan declared it is a perennial mistake to confuse rep repetition of old formulas with the living law of the church. The church on its pilgrim path has grown in grace and wisdom. Professor Noonan invoked the revision of the church's previous prohibition of usury, charging interest for lending money, about which he had written in 1957, as offering a precedent for the possibility of reassessing the prohibition of contraception. He noted that by contrast with the immense banking lobby that spearheaded the, momentum, the movement for changing the church's position on charging interest, there was no powerful group lobbying for married persons on the issue of birth control. Noonan's scholarship led to his having an advisory role on the Papal Commission or in relation to the Papal Commission on Birth Control. The American Catholic Historical Society awarded his book its John Gilmary Shea Prize 
for the most original and distinguished historical work of the year by an American Catholic. On October 29, 1966, a year later, speaking at an audience with the Italian Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Pope Paul VI declared that the magisterium was not in a state of doubt, but in a moment of reflection. The Birth Control Commission had already reported the majority report favoring a complete rethinking of the church's position, and the minority report saying that since popes had constantly taught this, any change in the position would endanger the teaching authority of the popes. Since Paul VI said that the magisterium was not in a state of doubt, but in a moment of reflection, and he had already received the report of the Birth Control Commission, especially the majority report, one member of the commission leaked the report to the press and in the United States, it was published in April of 1967 by the National Catholic Reporter. Despite the recommendations of the majority of the Birth Control Commission, Pope Paul VI's encyclical, Humanae Vitae, issued in 1968, did not change the church's position. In a church that can and cannot change, published in 2005, Professor and Judge Noonan documented how for centuries the church resisted condemning slavery. The book traced the acceptance and practice of slavery in the Christian Catholic tradition. Noonan began with the Hebrew scriptures and then proceeded through a selective analysis of the gospels, the epistles of Paul, the early church, medieval theologians and canonists, and the European slave trade, particularly in the time of colonial expansion. He documents that popes received slaves, offered them as gifts, and used them to man the galleys of the pope's navy, observing that slavery existed in the papal states in the early 19th century. Missionaries and their religious orders traveling in the path of Portuguese and Spanish explorers engaged in the buying and selling of slaves, and even complained at attempts to limit the number of slaves that they could own. A Christian case against slavery emerged outside the Catholic Church in 1693 at the monthly meeting of Friends in Philadelphia. Quakers took up the cause of abolition and emancipation. Then in the culture of late 18th century England, Jesus' commandment of love finally began to make significant inroads against the institution of slavery. Noonan notes that there were 10 distinct condemnations of usury in the Catholic tradition which with the rise of capitalism ultimately came to be accepted. But no clear and definitive condemnations of slavery until Pope Gregory XVI's prohibition of the slave trade in his letter in Supremo Apostolatus Fastigio issued in 1839 at the behest of the British government. Commenting on Vatican II's statement in Gaudium et Spes, the church in the modern world, and John Paul II's condemnations of slavery in Veritatis Splendor, which are the first examples of slavery being declared inherently evil, Noonan observes that the magisterium came into harmony with the thinking of the body of the faithful. Average Catholics thought and still think that the church had always been against slavery. In reality, rank and file believers' perspectives on that issue were ahead of the official thinking. As he says, by 1960, everyone knew that slavery was bad. But as late as 1936, a Catholic moral theologian was still arguing that slavery was, quote, less fitting for human dignity, 
but, quote, not per se opposed to natural law and not unlawful by scripture. Noonan concluded that change is not a thing to be ashamed of, to be whispered about, to be disguised, or to be held from the light of day, as grave guardians sometimes think. Change in continuity with roots is the rule of human life. It's been the way of life in the church. The new and the, un the, new and the old cannot in life be neatly distinguished as the old slowly comes to fruition in the new. His book brings one toward the realization that there has been a certain heterogeneous inconsistency, even not excluding the church's determination of what is unnatural or intrinsically evil. That served to buttress the book's call for a different kind of development that allows for genuine change, warranted by experience and empathy, new insight and understanding. He tells us that such development is deepened by prayer, meditation, and full attention to revelation, by empirical investigation, and by the intellectual, moral, emotional, and social development of human beings, which becomes known empirically in its results. For example, our present view of slavery and of persecution, inquisition, burning at the stake, as absurd, unjust, and outrageous beyond comprehension. Genuine development proceeds by the rule of faith. The love of God, in his words, generates, reinforces, and seals the love of neighbor. If certain human acts, for example, slavery, were once judged not to be intrinsically evil, but then after many centuries came to be considered intrinsically evil, such development can cut both ways as has already happened with usury. Is it also possible that other human acts, once judged to be intrinsically evil, could come to be considered not intrinsically evil? As a Catholic intellectual and a jurist, who with great scholarship and care has applied the concept of the development of doctrine to ethical issues faced by the church, John T. Noonan, in my opinion, exemplifies the intellectually informed and faithfully engaged believer, envisioned both in the Second, Council, Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, Section 37, and in the Decree on the Apostolate of Lay People, Apostolicum Actuositatem, Section 6. Congratulations, Judge Noonan. And now for something entirely different. Um, so uh, as uh, Barbara Wall uh, said, I hold a, a doctorate from Oxford. It's in legal philosophy. And I'm going to comment on Judge Noonan's work in legal philosophy, primarily by focusing on his uh, work in a book called Persons and Masks of the Law. Um, if I had to describe Judge Noonan's methodology in legal philosophy, it's to say that he's very much a legal historian. And what I try to do in this paper is to pull out some of the lessons that he teaches us by situating his legal philosophy in the context of some very abstract and boring debates about jurisprudential methodology. So um, join with me. <clears throat> 
I'd like to start in any event by thanking Dr. Barbara Wall for inviting me to attend and participate in today's event. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share a few reflections with you on Judge Noonan's work as a legal philosopher, and I'm deeply honored to have the opportunity to participate in honoring Judge Noonan. I'd also like to thank Marcy Bray, who may be here, but thank you for your tireless work in organizing this event. Okay, so I've been asked to comment on Judge Noonan as legal philosopher, and I will do so primarily by engaging with persons in masks of the law, Despite the fact that Judge Noonan wrote the book when he was not Judge Noonan, I shall refer to him as Judge Noonan throughout without attempting to place a mask on him, but more just out of respect for him and his position. Um, as I said, I'm going to try to frame my comments uh, in the context of a long-running debate between warring camps within jurisprudence, the legal positivists versus the natural law theorists. So the question I'm going to pose is, is Judge Noonan's approach to legal philosophy more in keeping with legal positivism or natural law theory? I'll ruin the punchline now. I think he's relatively consistent with both, but he improves both in remarkable ways. And it occurred to me, it's not in the paper, but it occurred to me on the way over here that the book was written and published in the early 1970s, which is just about halfway between the time when the key piece of legal positivist work by a man named H.L.A. Hart was published in 1961, uh, that was called The Concept of Law. And then later in 1980, John Finnis, published what is recognized to be the most uh, famous work of natural law theory. And so that uh, Judge Noonan managed to write this book at that times, right in between Hart and Finnis, and to my thinking, approach the questions of legal philosophy from a, a methodological standpoint that marks a significant improvement on both legal positivism and natural law theory, I think is reason enough to award the medal. But I'll see if I can explain what I mean by that. So for those of you who have better things to do with your time than keeping up with the finer points of the legal positivist versus natural lawyers debate, let me fill you in on the details. On the one side, we have the legal positivists who hold firmly to the view that law, whatever it is and wherever it is to be found, is posited. That's why they're called legal positivists. They're not positive in the sense of yay law. They think that law is posited, which is to say that if some norm is valid as law, it is valid in virtue of its sources, in virtue of the fact that it has been posited, rather than its merits. So I sometimes explain this to my students in class by having them imagine the old Schoolhouse Rock videos with Bill sitting on Capitol Hill. And I imagine, let's say Bill comes up to you and says, hey, I'm a law. Now, if you're a legal positivist, the first question you're going to ask Bill is, where did you come from? Who enacted you? Who posited you? Were you signed into law by the president after being passed by Congress or enacted into law by the queen after being passed by parliament? You will ask about the social facts surrounding the positing of Bill when he claims he is a law. And if he gives you the right answer that matches up with some rule of recognition in your jurisdiction, then you say, okay, I believe you, fine. What you will not do as a legal positivist is ask Bill whether he's good, what his merits are, whether he makes the world a better place in any way. That's just not the concern of the legal positivists when thinking about the nature of law. They're looking for con conditions of legal validity rather than the merits of law. So there are certainly elements of Judge Noonan's work that suggest that he assumes the truth of this basic thesis of legal positivism. Um, to quote, he says, rules of law are formed by human beings. 
to shape the attitude and conduct of human beings and applied by human beings. The idea of law being both formed and applied by human beings being posited is consistent with this basic idea of legal positivism. Judge Noonan also acknowledges that the sources of law are, of course, not individually identifiable human beings, but human beings who hold an office, a legal office. So law is not created by Jack or Jane or Bill or Betty. Law is created by legislators or other legal officials who have lawmaking power. By recognizing that law is created by human beings who stand in the role of legal official, and yet the role of legal official is only made possible by the existence of law, Judge Noonan thereby confronts the classic chicken and egg problem of legal positivism. How can law be created by human beings acting in the role of legal official if the role of legal official does not exist without law? As Noonan puts the puzzle, rules mark out the process by which office is achieved, rules identify the office holder, rules delineate the boundaries of office, rules create the roles within which the office holder acts with authority. Now, while Judge Noonan does not set out to solve this chicken and egg puzzle, the mere fact that he recognizes it is further evidence in favor of thinking that he endorses the basic thesis of legal positivism, which is that law is valid according to its sources. Now, in contrast to legal positivism, natural law theory has sometimes been taken to reject the idea that law is valid according to its sources and not its merits. Classical natural law theory has sometimes been characterized or perhaps mischaracterized as claiming that an unjust law is no law at all. So think of Bill on Capitol Hill. If you took this view and you found out that Bill was evil, you'd say, you're not a law, Bill. No matter how you got posited, you're not law. Um, now, modern natural law theorists tend to soften this claim, of course, arguing instead that what is importantly distinct regarding the natural law approach to legal philosophy is the point of view that it adopts when thinking about the nature of law, the point of view that the philosopher brings to the table when thinking about the law. John Finnis puts it in his classic work, Natural Law and Natural Rights, if there is a point of view for which it is a matter of overriding importance that law should come into being and thus become an object of theorist description, then such a viewpoint will constitute the central case of the legal point of view. Now this point of view, as Finnis would agree, is one that takes the human person and the common good of human communities as its focus. Whenever it is the case that law should come into being and thus become an object of the theorist description, then that is so because the law, if it exists, affects human persons. Now, according to Finnis, the legal philosopher will come to the best understanding of law by focusing on its successful cases, the central cases of law, in which law does serve a common good of human persons. But let us leave that point to one side for a moment and simply conclude that insofar as Judge Noonan's work as a legal philosopher focuses very much on the human person rather than abstract rules, it sits firmly within the natural law tradition. To quote from Judge Noonan, rules cannot be the sole or principal object of legal study, legal history, or legal philosophy without distortion. What is distorted is the place of the person in the process. Similarly, in characterizing the legal process, he observes, the process is rightly understood only if rules and persons are seen as equally essential components. Every rule depending on persons to frame, apply, and undergo it every person using rules. Rules and persons in the analysis of law are complementary. So at this point, it seems safe 
to conclude that Judge Noonan's approach to doing legal philosophy can be characterized as consistent with both legal positivism and natural law theory. Yet I fear that he would resist this uh, claim and he would not want to be associated with legal positivism. As I say, he was writing in the early 1970s and Judge Noonan very much viewed himself as railing against what he called the dominance of rules in jurisprudence, which at the time was characteristic of legal positivism. At the time, somewhat still today perhaps, legal philosophy was dominated by an Oxford style of conceptual analysis with its tendencies to focus more on abstractions over particularities and rules over persons. And Judge Noonan clearly took himself to be writing persons and masks of the law as a corrective to what was being offered by those whom he characterized as rule-oriented writers. In one of my favorite passages from Persons and Masks of the Law, Judge Noonan expresses his frustration with this style of thought by comparing legal positivists of the day to a group of experts convened to study and improve railroads without bothering to think about how the railroads and what they do might affect the passengers on the trains. If I had time, I'd read it to you. It's on page nine to 10. I highly recommend it. It's rare to find a passage in legal philosophy that's funny. And I think Judge Noonan pulled that off well. So I highly recommend it to you. Um, in any event, uh, thinking about the law as these experts think about railroads without regard to passengers, that is, without regard to persons who are at the center of law, by whom law is created and applied and for whom law exists, is, as Judge Noonan observed, terribly misguided. So he was right then to express frustration with the legal philosophers who attempt to understand law in that way. Um, and he presumably would welcome more recent work in legal philosophy, uh, legal positivist tradition, by authors such as John Gardner or John Tassiolis, which has gone some way toward moving the positivist tradition away from abstract analysis and toward a perspective that focuses more on the human person. So perhaps, as things stand, Judge Noonan might be willing to accept at least partial membership in the club of the legal positivists. Now, on to natural law theory. As for where Judge Noonan's work sits within the tradition of natural law theory, I'm somewhat less certain. To be sure, his work is not in keeping with any literal interpretation of the claim that an unjust law is no law. Indeed, as his sustained criticism of antebellum slavery laws demonstrate, he was not naive enough to think that evil laws cease to have legal power, legal effect, or legal validity. Indeed, the very fact that these evil laws had such power, that's what made them the object of his interest in study. As Judge Noonan would agree, the law can do evil. One of the chief ways it can do so is by creating what he calls masks, by which he means ways of classifying individual human beings so that their humanity is hidden and disavowed. A mask, as he writes, is a legal construct suppressing the humanity of a participant in that process. Law that defines persons as property, as was the case under slavery, is paradigmatic of the evil that law can do through imposing masks on persons. But other masks are created through law as well, such as those worn by judges who may find themselves consciously or unconsciously alienated from their own humanity, applying rules in ways that create additional masks for other participants, masks that deny the particularity of the humans before them and instead reduce them merely to plaintiffs or defendants. You may have noticed, Judge Noonan and others, that I have fallen into a common trap amongst lawyers and legal philosophers alike, that of personifying the law. In the previous passage, I found myself writing and now speaking about the law is creating masks. I was guilty of what Judge Noonan correctly criticizes as attributing to an abstraction the action of living men and women. 
I've been speaking about the law as if it's capable of doing evil and creating masks for its participants, but persons and masks in, in the law, Judge Noonan illustrates not how law creates these masks, but how we, the participants in the law, do it to ourselves. In this tremendous book, um, Judge Noonan takes up a detailed analysis of three historical moments in American law, uh, the creation of the post-revolutionary slavery laws in Virginia, the creation of monopolies to create banana republics in Costa Rica, and poor Mrs. Paul's graph, who if we have any lawyers in the room will know all about poor Mrs. Paul's graph and how, how uh, Benjamin Cardozo treated her quite badly, indeed even forcing her to pay both her own court costs and the court costs uh, of the railroad whom she was suing. Um, Judge Noonan painstakingly details and criticizes these moments in history to teach us two important lessons. First, that persons are central in any account of what the law does, so that when we conceive of laws, good or evil, we must never forget the human beings at the center of the story. And the second thing that Judge Noonan's work teaches us is that in order to gain a better understanding of law, we need not focus our attention only on the successful cases, good laws, just laws, laws that do serve the common good. Rather, we can acknowledge that bad laws, even evil laws, are still laws. And moreover, contrary to what John Finnis would have us think, Judge Noonan demonstrates that we can acquire a better understanding of law by focusing on interests in instances of bad or even evil lawmaking and unjust applications of the law. So in other words, Judge Noonan teaches us that to remove the masks of the law, the people participating in the law must first see the masks for what they are and understand the ways in which we contribute to their construction. To conclude, I think that there is a case to be made for characterizing Judge Noonan's Persons and Masks of the Law as a work that is situated within two competing traditions within legal philosophy, both legal positivism and natural law. But what my comments suggest, however, is that his approach is a significant improvement on both. Thank you, Judge Noonan. The non-lawyers in the room probably have little idea what a prize it is for a recent law school graduate to spend a year clerking for a federal judge. A federal clerkship is the brass ring, and it eludes even many accomplished graduates of the best schools. Following the customary practice, I sent out a stack of applications to federal district judges and federal circuit judges all across the country in the middle of my second year of law school. In a display of either pride or humility, I'm not yet sure which it was, I wrote in my application to Judge Noonan that he was my first choice in the nation. I had first learned of Judge Noonan's legendary scholarly work when I was a graduate student in the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto, and had even applied to be his research assistant, a job I didn't get, when I arrived at UC Berkeley for law school, where he continued to teach after going on the bench. I was, in short, in awe of the man from afar. Well, after an interval of a week or 10 days, after sending in the applications, and it seemed like forever, I received a call from Judge Noonan's chambers, 
offering me an interview. I was elated, of course, though realistic enough to recognize that I was undoubtedly one among many more interviewees than the judge could hire. Circuit judges are usually entitled to three clerks. At the suggestion of the, uh, the judge's assistant, we scheduled the interview for some 10 days later. That was, I think, a Monday. So far, so good. On Tuesday afternoon, the phone rang, and I answered. This was long before caller ID, of course, and was astonished to hear an elderly but booming voice say, and I'll never forget this, quote, this is Judge Stanley Weigel. You have applied to clerk in my chambers in San Francisco. I can interview on Thursday afternoon. I will see you then. Click. I knew in a flash what my problem was, and there didn't seem to be a way out of it. Stanley Weigel had been serving since his appointment by President Kennedy and was legendary as a district judge for brooking no compromise. Two days later, at the end of my grueling interview with Judge Weigel, he further astonished me by offering me the clerkship if I would accept it on the spot, an unusual move for which I was utterly unprepared. Gathering my wits or losing my mind, again, I'm not sure which it was, I sputtered that I would accept on condition that Judge Noonan, with whom I'd already scheduled an interview, not offer me my first choice clerkship. I won't describe, those of you who know me are laughing loudest, um, I won't describe what happened next in Judge Weigel's chambers. But you can perhaps imagine my relief when a few days later, that is, after my interview with Judge Noonan, he called to offer me the job of a lifetime. Never would I have guessed at the time that many years later, Judge Noonan would make the trip from San Francisco to Phoenix, Arizona to attend my wedding mass. Clerking for Judge Noonan was indeed a life-changing experience, above all because I saw up close and learned from the example of something approaching the platonic form of a judge, or what Aristotle called animate justice. The chambers was liberatingly free of ideology. There wasn't talk about textualism, originalism, liberalism, conservatism, judicial activism, or the like. Quite simply, there was none of the incessant cant that now dominates federal judicial appointments and the Senate confirmation process. Instead, Judge Noonan knew the facts of every case like the back of his hand, because he cared. And he used legal method and legal reasoning to reach sound judgments. Easy questions were treated as easy. Hard questions were treated as hard and susceptible of only probabilistic justification, the stuff of human practical reason not of either geometry or, on the other hand, pure politics. No trace of authoritarianism lurked or threatened. Day in and day out, Judge Noonan worked on quietly resolving what he once famously described as, quote, the central problem of the legal enterprise, specifically the relation of love to power, close quote.
This was no loose or sentimental enterprise. But the way the God who created human persons in his own image and likeness intended them to be treated. I would like to quote at length now what Judge Noonan understands the place of love to be in law. Here from a 1998 essay in the Harvard Law Review critiquing the judicial approach or philosophy of Judge Richard Posner, another legendary circuit judge. Now I quote Judge Noonan at length. Love is not simply an emotion, a sentiment captured by Valentines. It is the love, quote, that moves the sun and the other stars, close quote, that also moves Dante, who declares, neither creator nor creature ever was without love. When God is said to love human beings, an emotion is not being attributed to God. Love is the, quote, word known to men, close quote, Joyce observes in Ulysses. The love that unites man and wife in matrimony is more than a sentiment. Love is a movement of the rational will seeking the good. That movement manifests two human desires, always mixed. The desire to meet the needs of one's own insufficiency and the desire to share one's goodness. The two great commandments of Christ inculcate love. They are the law and the prophets. It is by reflection on the promptings of love that morality begins, that requisite human response to the human stranger, somewhat mysterious in Posner, becomes clearer. Love and do what you will, advises Augustine, not dispensing with distinctions and discipline, but giving love its rightful place. By experience, by analogy, by more inclusive seeing, and also by argument, reasoning, and moral theorizing, morality is developed, and the great commandments become dynamic and move to realization in completeness." Close quote. It was a tall order, obviously, and Judge Noonan led by example, of which I'd like now to give three examples. First, when offering a potential clerk a clerkship, Judge Noonan cautioned that he didn't use his clerks like any other judge he knew. Most judges, many non-lawyers won't know this, don't write their own opinions. Maybe contribute very little to writing them. Judge Noonan insisted on writing every published opinion from scratch, and it was an amazing thing to watch. Most clerks can see their work published in the federal judicial books. He told me I would never see that. Second, most non-lawyers also won't know this. Most cases, that many cases that are filed in federal circuit courts, that is federal courts of appeals, don't actually make it to chambers to be heard by a panel of judges. When the cases are received, they're reviewed by um, a body of uh, career staff lawyers. And it's the job of those career staff lawyers to filter out the cases that are, that are deemed not worthy of the time of the judges because they're simple enough to be solved by the staff attorneys. Now this is a controversial procedure, um, but the burden on the federal bench, especially the Ninth Circuit where Judge Noonan sits, is such that 
the court literally can't hear all the cases. And so what these staff attorneys do is rank the cases from one to 10 in terms of difficulty. And in order for a case to make it to chambers for potential decision and written published opinion by the court, it has to get a three or higher. Cases that are ranked lower are decided by the staff attorneys. And then the usual procedure would be for um, a group of judges, I think the number was three, chosen by lot to appear periodically before the staff attorneys. And the staff attorneys would, would stand up and give brief rationales for the decisions they proposed in the respective cases. And then it was the usual practice for the, the judges there to rubber stamp them. Judge Noonan wouldn't abide this. He was the only judge on the Ninth Circuit who insisted on receiving in chambers all the briefs in all the cases that the staff attorneys were reviewing. And so when he went and appeared by, by lot before the staff attorneys, he didn't just rubber stamp. And when the clerks in our chambers would see the carts come pouring in with all the briefs that would have to be reviewed so he could go and make his own independent judgment, I rem remember the pits we would get on our stomach. Um, but we were wrong because he made it clear to us soon that he didn't expect us to be the ones who reviewed. Indeed, it was that exigent that he do the reviewing because he was the judge. And we would say, well, why, why do you have to dig down so deep? Um, why burden yourself so much? Because he said, it is the job of the judge, audi alterum partem, to hear the other side always. He wanted to see what both sides had argued and where it would lead his own mind. Third example, Judge Noonan, when I was leaving the interview, said that he'd already interviewed some candidates and he would interview a few more and he'd be in touch soon. But after he finished doing the interviewing, he would need to think a little because he placed a special premium on what he called collegiality and harmony in the chambers. And he wanted his three clerks to get along. Um, it's notorious how frequently clerks don't get along because they're all, by hypothesis, very competitive people who've always succeeded at everything and they want pats on the head from the judge. And Judge Noonan didn't want to live that way. My two co-clerks, Peter and Anton, couldn't have been more different between themselves and from me. Anton was a playboy who wanted little more than to play Nerf basketball when the judge wasn't looking, um, went out of the chambers, but did great work. My other clerk, uh, co-clerk Peter, was a very serious, delightful man who studied history, PhD in history. And I was the only, only Catholic in the group. And we got along famously and remained friends until now. <laughs> I was afraid you would catch that, Father. <laughs> we'll take that up. Um, a final vignette will encapsulate the point about the kind of judge Judge Noonan is. One weekend, well enough into my clerkship that I felt that I was master of the ropes, I went into the chambers on a Sunday afternoon to get ahead 
on my work so that I could ask the judge for a few days off to take a camping trip with some good friends. At the top of the stack of papers for which I was responsible was a set of briefs in a case that, after a couple of hours of study, I thought was easy to decide. It was ranked a three on that scale that I mentioned before, and I was sure I knew both that it wouldn't be set for oral argument, and furthermore, how the judge and his colleagues on the panel would come out on the merits. So instead of writing an analysis for the judge in the form of a memo, as I should have done, I wrote a memorandum of decision. That, that is an unpublished opinion, the final judgment in the case, and placed it in the judge's inbox on my way out of the door late on Sunday afternoon. Monday afternoon, after a morning of oddly chilly relations in the entire chambers, Judge Noonan strode into my office, closed the door, plopped the memorandum of decision on my desk, and said, quote, Mr. Brennan, there is one judge in this chambers, <laughs> and it is not you, close quote. He was right, and I had been wrong to usurp. The influential American jurist, Ronald Dworkin, once told the story of how Judge Learned Hand, another of the 20th century's great judges, tried to teach his young clerk, Dworkin, a similar lesson. He threw his inkwell at Dworkin. It is arguable that Dworkin didn't learn the intended lesson, however, as his own legal philosophy was later constructed around an ideal and omniscient judge known as Hercules. Judge Noonan, by contrast, for all his brilliance and towering erudition, understood and showed himself to be a pilgrim in the law, and before that, a pilgrim in a pilgrim church. Thank you. I'd like to thank each of our panelists so very much who gave us an extraordinary portrait of you, Judge Noonan. So at this point, uh, Father Donahue will confer the medal on Judge Noonan, the Civitas Dei medal. John T. Noonan is a husband, father, scholar, author, teacher, distinguished jurist, and faithful son of the church. Currently, he is Robbins Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. In a scholarly and professional career that now spans 65 years, he has written a number of important studies about the intersection of Catholic moral doctrine and the law. He has authored a series of biographical essays on leading canon lawyers of the, 12th, of the 12th century, as well as articles on scholastic philosophy. Many focus on morality and ethics, American and world Catholicism, and the development of moral doctrine. These writings have shaped Catholic debate in the United States for over four decades. Among his most influential works, our Contraception, a History of Its Treatment for the Catholic Theologians and Canonists, and A Church That Can and Cannot Change, The Development of Catholic Moral Teaching. 
As a Harvard-trained lawyer and federal judge, Judge Noonan has helped de de decide a number of important cases, most notably ones addressing the death penalty and assisted suicide. He has also authored a number of books, papers, essays, and articles, and general interest to the American legal profession. Among the most notable of these works are the, lust are the luster of, the, of our country, the American experience of religious freedom, and narrowing nation's power, the Supreme Court sides with the states. In addition, he has served the country as a member of the Presidential Commission on Population, National Institutions of Health, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, as well as the American Law Institute. Likewise, he has served the church as a consultant to the USCCB committees on moral values, law and public policy, law and life issues, as well as the Committee on Social Development and World Peace. He has been awarded eight honorary degrees, the University of Notre Dame's Medal in 1984, and the Aquinas Medal from the American Catholic Philosophical Association in 1995. Judge Noonan, um, it is like the elephant in the room. Um, you are not here with us, but you are on a big screen in front of all of us. And so on behalf of everyone at Villanova University, we thank you for making the effort to join us here today. And by the power invested to me by the Board of Trustees of Villanova University, I am proud to bestow upon you the Civitas Dei Award of 2013 to Judge John T. Noonan, Esquire.
Thank you so much, Judge Noonan. Um, this has been a wonderful afternoon. At this point, I would like to ask um, Catherine Gedick-Saltis to come up in to deliver the benediction. Thank you. Loving God, let us not tire in seeking you. Let us not forget your presence among us. But place in our hearts a passion for your truth, a trust in your goodness, and a love of your beauty. Renew and enliven our minds so that we may use your every gift to us in the service of the reign of God, which you have wonderfully proclaimed. May we discern your truth with humility, speak your good news with eloquence, and persevere in living out your wisdom. Bless our work, bless our celebrations. Open our eyes and hearts to those who suffer and are forgotten. Direct all that we do and are to the benefit of your creation. And let us give you praise honor and thanksgiving for your unending goodness. In your name we pray. Amen. And now Judge Noonan, in your absence, um, we will continue to think of you and this memorable contribution that you have made, but especially the memorable contribution that you've made with your, your whole life's work. We're most uh, appreciative and grateful for you. And we are going to celebrate with libations and uh, food in your honor, of course. So we're most grateful. We wish you were here, but we understand and um, we send our gratitude and uh, appreciation for all that you've done and for all that you are. Blessings on you. God bless.